Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. Hi, my name is Felicia Pieper, and I'm a Master's of Public Health student at the University of Iowa College of Public Health, and today I'll be serving as host in this podcast episode dedicated to immigrant health as a part of the Tackling Equity series. And with me, I have Dr. Michelle Devlin. Dr. Michelle Devlin is Professor of Global Health and Emergency Medical Technician in the Department of Health, Recreation, and Community Services at the University of Northern Iowa, UNI. She is head of the UNI Global Health Corps organization and also serves as founding director of the Iowa Center on Health Disparities, a model agency established by the National Institutes of Health to improve health equity for underserved populations. Dr. Devlin is an adjunct research professor with the United States Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Dr. Devlin's primary areas of specialty include refugee and minority health, human migration, maternal and child health, and disaster response. How are you, Dr. Devlin? I'm doing just fine. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you. Could you explain to us a little bit about what the history of immigration is in our region? Who comes, why do they come, and how and why does this change? Sure. We've seen some interesting human migration streams within the past several decades here in the state of Iowa and in the Midwest in general, and a lot of that is driven by different patterns uh, that we're experiencing within the area. So to give you an example, a lot of our immigration, uh, certainly around the 1990s anyway, and maybe even a bit before that, was primarily uh, through the influx of people from Mexico that were coming into the area. And there were push-pull factors uh, you know, challenging economic situations within Mexico pushed people out. And then in terms of the pull factors, we had a number of uh, different organizations that were looking for laborers to work within the Midwest. And it's a wide variety of organizations. We've seen it within the uh, meatpacking industry, agricultural processing, warehousing, other types of jobs and companies where people may be able to work that don't need to have a lot of English language skills. They don't need to have a, a, you know, a lot of higher level skills and basically a number of different repetitive movement types of positions and jobs that they could be trained in fairly quickly. But a lot of uh, that that typical migration stream, and it was primarily younger men, um, that all changed really around 2008 and beyond. And one of the major drivers of that change within the nation, actually, not just within the Midwest or Iowa, was the large immigration raid that occurred here in Northeast Iowa in Postville. And uh, at the time, that was the largest single site immigration raid within the United States. And there were uh, almost uh, 400 people that were arrested. They were primarily Guatemalan indigenous workers. They were mostly undocumented. But what made it different was not just that the workers were arrested, 
so were the managers, so were the owners, uh, the, the Americans that hired them and allowed them to work there. And that really, that really scared a lot of different companies around the country that had traditionally relied on undocumented workers to do a lot of their labor. And so that, that switched, that made a lot of companies uh, try to hire people that could work here legally. And so now we have what we call micro diversity or micro plurality within the state of Iowa, within the Midwest area in general. And if you look at some of our communities, for instance, within Iowa, if you take the towns of Waterloo, Denison, Postville, Storm Lake, um, there are so many of them, uh, small meatpacking towns, you can easily, in a lot of those communities, now have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 different languages and unique cultures within those communities. And those are primarily refugees and legal immigrants that uh, do have the documentation to be here legally, and they are being recruited by companies as laborers. They are not showing up randomly in the state. Uh, they are very much being recruited here because we have a workforce shortage. And so within Iowa, within large parts of the Midwest and other rural areas of the country, you're seeing an aging population. Uh, in fact, there are some counties within Iowa where you know they're 50% or more of the population uh, the majority of the population is actually over 50 years of age. You don't have as many children. We're below replacement fertility levels within a number of our different uh, ethnic groups and cultures, including whites and including a number of our non-white populations. Uh, depending on the state, depending on the region and the area, we can easily lose 50% or more of our young people when they graduate to other states. And they may be going to, for instance, from Iowa, a lot of them go to Colorado for work, or they may go to Minneapolis for work, or Los Angeles, or, uh, you know, different parts of the country that are more urban, where they can get higher, you know, salaries and these kinds of things. And then we are urbanizing. Iowa now is technically, hard to believe, but technically an urban state. We have more people living in urban areas than in our traditional uh, smaller rural communities. And so we have, uh, you know, lots of these different factors that are driving a workforce shortage in large parts of rural America, including, again, Iowa and a lot of our neighboring states where different public health professionals are increasingly serving refugees and immigrants in small towns and even larger towns that, that are coming from, you know, well over 100 different cultures. And to give an idea, within the state of Iowa, we are now well over 180 languages within the state. And again, that's primarily driven by pull factors, by companies that are recruiting people here legally <clears throat> so that they can work within our different industries. I'm more familiar with the term new destination. Is that a term that you use in your work? Uh, certainly, a new destination. We like to we like to emphasize micro diversity okay. because it really shows diversity within diversity. What's happened for too long is that people have just uh, 
you know, again, in, in the public health field, we've thought of our patients as well. We have white patients and black patients and Latino patients and Asian patients. And that may have been true at one point, again, where they were primarily from, from one, one ethnic culture and from one race, potentially. But I, again, because of these new changes where the demographics are really dry, the labor, uh, the globalization of the labor force and the need for labor is really driving new, uh, new, you know, people coming in, you know, sort of these new destinations, we're seeing micro diversity. So for instance, within the state of Iowa, yes, we have a, uh, we have Asian patients, but uh, it's very interesting. One of our largest Asian populations are uh, the Burmese, which you'll hear people say, well, we have the Burmese are here. <clears throat> and of course they are not just the Burmese, they are people from Myanmar and they are ethnic groups within Myanmar. So depending on what community you're in uh, within Iowa, you easily, easily could have people from Burma that are from, you know, a dozen or more different ethnic populations speaking very different languages, not even dialects, but languages that are different, very different and unique cultural practices and beliefs and and uh, backgrounds that all affect the public health status of their communities and the way that public health workers need to work with them. So we'd like people to really understand the importance of ethnicity and understanding the cultural background of where people are coming. And I should say too, the other uh, thing that makes us uh, somewhat a bit challenging for the migration stream issue is because the state uh, and the region now, a lot of these companies are really trying to hire people that can work here legally. We are seeing a lot of what we call secondary migrants. So for instance, let's take the Burmese. We're often uh, different companies here in Iowa. They're not necessarily Sometimes they are, but not necessarily recruiting them from refugee camps in Malaysia to come here to Iowa, but they may be recruiting them from a different state, let's say from uh, Arkansas, which does have, uh, or, or uh, uh, let's say Dallas, for instance, Texas, and they're recruiting them from, you know, that area to come up to Iowa. So they're technically secondary migrants. We have thousands of them here in Waterloo. Uh, we have Congolese refugees, a significant population here in Waterloo, Iowa, which only has 70,000 people in it. And those uh, Congolese are secondary migrants. They, did not, they were not recruited by the local meatpacking plant from refugee camps in Africa. They, they were actually recruiting them right next door from Illinois, where they already were. And they've been for a number of years, and then they come, come into here. So it's a very, uh, you know, very, very diverse pattern. And we, again, really want public health workers to understand that level of cultural diversity and how that can play out in healthcare. What are some of the unique health needs, challenges, opportunities of immigrant populations in our region? Sure. Um, there are many of all of, all of those things. Uh, very often what we hear of first or what people, you know, health workers or health agencies talk about first are some of the different challenges 
that we see because it is relatively new for them. And again, you can have communities that have primarily been made up of uh, maybe one or two or three racial groups uh, for many, many years, for many decades. And then suddenly within a relatively short amount of time, you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 or more different nationalities within a community, again, all driven by this uh, workforce shortage and the need for labor. So one of the biggest challenges you'll hear a lot of public health folks and medical, you know, people as well doing clinical care, you'll hear them talk about the language diversity. So as I mentioned before, within the state of Iowa, we are well over 180 languages now. The other thing that we're seeing uh, kind of within the whole region, the Midwest region, is the language the level of language diversity is very significant. For instance, depending on what community you're looking at and what area, you could easily have, um, you know, a third or more of the languages spoken technically classified as rare languages. And so it becomes very, very difficult to find interpreters to do, you know, the verbal translation of information or of course uh, people do the written translation of information but it's very difficult to find interpreters for many of these different languages uh, in person is hard as well as even if you call up and you have a contract with a for-profit language interpretation service and you call them up and say hey i've got these uh you know people from the south uh, the western pacific and they're speaking uh, you know, something from the area, Palau, do you have anything? And they may not. And even though they're pulling on interpreters that may live in New York City or LA or, or Arkansas, in the case of the Pacific Islanders, they have a huge group of Marshallese down there from the Marshall Islands. You just cannot always find an interpreter. And so, yes, we do have people doing charades. I mean, that does, it, it's very sad. And there would have been a time that you know, we could have provided you with different referrals and resources, but people are doing charades at some point, trying to act out and explain different symptoms and signs and, and you know, clinical health issues and all these challenges. The other thing we see too with the language is that we have an increasing number of people that are coming in that are not literate in their native language, let alone in English. So you're several languages away from being able to communicate, let's say, through writing, you know, by using websites or handing out brochures or, you know, gee, you've got this disease or condition or we'll do a, you know, a public health education campaign and we'll hit the, uh, you know, we'll have a lot of stuff on our websites and we'll do Facebook pages and then blah, blah, and all this stuff. Well, that doesn't work if people can't read in their native language, let alone in English. And that's not something that can be fixed within a day or two. That's going to take a very long time to get, you know, literacy levels up. So that's a significant challenge. We also see a lot of uh, issues going on just in terms of differences in cultural health beliefs and practices and understanding and, you know, not levels of knowledge. and. Hmm. These kinds of things, uh, for instance, different cultures, different populations within different cultures will have different um, beliefs in how, in, in health, period, what is health, 
how is health defined? How do you obtain health? How do you maintain health? And what causes non-health or disease or illness? Uh, a lot of our cultures coming in, for instance, uh, can view health from a very, very holistic standpoint. They've been doing that forever. Well, you know, far longer than anything when we started to look at it in Western medicine much more recently, but, you know, uh, health, very holistic and includes not just physical and mental, but emotional health and social health and health of the family, health of the community, health of the spirit. Uh, so much, much broader. And then they come into the West and into the U.S. and our health often is, you know, you know, looked at very much from a, viral standpoint or a, a lifestyle standpoint smoking causes cancer you know this kind of thing which it obviously does but uh they tend to be looking at it much more broadly and they're using different traditional health practices uh for instance we see within a lot of our refugee and immigrant populations they may be going to western medical providers but a lot of them are also simultaneously or maybe initially using traditional health practices and so maybe uh, medicinal you know remedies that people are bringing from the homeland here or that they're getting in ethnic stores where they shop there are shamans within these communities uh, bone setters curanderos you know traditional healers in a lot of their different communities uh, that they may be utilizing as well in addition to anything that we're doing um, you know from a western medical standpoint uh, of course, we're also seeing financial barriers to care. This is significant, although it's changed somewhat. When our migration stream in earlier decades was primarily made up of people that were undocumented, that did not have the legal ability to work in the U.S., but nonetheless, they were being recruited and were finding <clears throat> or, you know, coming themselves through push-pull factors and working in a lot of uh, you know, different industries around the country, there were uh, different, uh, you know, challenges with them. But now that financially, they, they did not have enough money for medical care, and they may have feared uh, getting arrested by authorities, you know, and, and deported and all of this. But we're seeing with a lot of these new populations that were within our community, they are overwhelmingly here legally. And the companies know that. That's why they're recruiting them from legal populations. That's why refugees are here. By definition, they have the legal ability to be here. And so because of that, actually, a lot of, a number of the companies now have health insurance benefits. We didn't always see that, for instance, in the agricultural processing industries in the Midwest. But we see that today. A lot of the companies are providing health insurance. So that's terrific. That's been a great improvement. Uh, but we still see challenges with people not understanding how to use insurance, not understanding where to go for medical care, or if they do go, even if they have insurance, uh, the deductibles uh, may be too much for them to afford or the co-pays or, you know, different things like, like that. Um, and so those are probably some of the most commonly cited challenges that we see within our refugee and immigrant workforce within the region. So Dr. Devlin, you've done a great job explaining to us about the immigrant and refugee populations that we have in our area and some things that public health practitioners should keep in mind. What are some things that health departments should keep in mind when working with new communities? 
Yeah, great question. I think one of the most important uh, things that we've seen uh, traditionally here is that they have to know who their public is. Uh, they have to be very actively aware of what kinds of, uh, you know, populations are coming in and out of a region, of a state, of a community, and how this could affect their service population and what you know, what services and programs are ultimately going, uh, you know, need to be developed. Uh, we've worked with a number of different public health departments that initially brought us in as, uh, you know, consultants or trainers and saying, hey, we've got some new people here, but we don't know who they are, where they're from, what their deal is, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And so you really have to uh, get into the field almost of medical anthropology and be an ethnographer and get out of the office and walk the streets, go to the neighborhoods, go to the markets, go to the soccer festivals, go to the, you know, the ethnic celebrations and the holidays and just start talking to people and having conversations uh, with them. And sometimes we find that that can be difficult for some agencies to do. And when you're working with rapid ethnic diversification, which is what we have, and when you're working with micro diversity as your overall demographic theme, we don't have the luxury of just being able to sit in our offices and run data and look at numbers and look at written reports. We have to get out of our public health offices and get into the communities and start talking with people and really understanding the level of diversity that we're seeing and then keeping track of that and understanding that these populations within our communities are changing all over America, not just in Iowa, not just in the Midwest, but all over America and different uh, streams of newcomers are, you know, they're very fluid. They come in, they come out, some stay, some don't stay. But, you know, you've got to understand the push and pull factors, the drivers, are there certain companies, for instance, within a, a region that are the key employers that are driving the pull factors to bring in refugee and, and immigrant workers. Well, those are good agencies, good companies then to talk to. Who are they hiring? What kinds of populations are they bringing in? And what do they need? And this kind of thing. We also do a lot of work with school districts because they are very good partners, usually, you know, in general with public health agencies and schools are, you know, it's a critical collaboration there. But the other reason we like to work with the schools is because they are some of the first agencies and organizations that will see immigrants and refugees. And we often talk with their teachers that do the, uh, you know, English as a second language or dual language learner types of classrooms. They can tell you right away what communities and what new populations are in the area. Uh, and they have a very, very good feel for who those uh, populations are, why they're here, uh, what their needs are, what their challenges are. They, they'll talk very openly about, you know, language barriers, literacy barriers, financial needs, you know, anything unique to that community. Uh, they usually have a really good feel for that. And then we do like to work also with social service agencies, uh, you know, DHS groups, um, you know, even uh, nonprofits that serve low income populations, for instance, local food banks, they have a very good feel also typically for what populations may be in a community 
that may be under the radar, but they're there and they need help and why are they here and, and what's going on with them. The other thing I would say too is that uh, a lot of a lot of these different cultures that we're seeing in the area today in the region today these are classified as high context cultures really from an anthropology uh, standpoint they're group based cultures not they don't focus on the individual as much as they focus on the group or the large family so they're coming in as large extended families and so it's very rare that you would find one you know, immigrant or one refugee in a community or in a neighborhood, they are typically here as groups of people. And again, it's a different demographic than what we saw maybe back in the 80s where we had young single men coming in primarily from Mexico as laborers. These are large families being recruited here. And so public health departments are not serving individuals, they're serving groups of people. And they're not these are secondary migrants primarily not always primarily in our region again so they came from some other state in the u.s or multiple states in the u.s before they came uh you know from refugee camps before they fled the war conflict in their native home so you can also public health departments can also just pick up the phone and call the public health department in uh chicago or the public health department in upstate new york or you know these kinds of areas uh, where these folks came from and talk to talk to their colleagues ask them what you know what did you do with this community what did you do for this group what were their challenges what worked well what didn't work well what do we need to know again i use the case of the marshallese from the western pacific they're not actually here on refugee status they're on territory status there are all kinds of different um, categories of people that are here but they are legally here well, there's a huge population of them in arkansas there's a huge population of them in Orange County and California and parts of Southern California to so talk to the colleagues in those communities to find out what the needs are. Um, in terms of strengths, we have seen that these populations have brought so much, you know, to, to our communities and they brought really good things. Again, because they're coming in as families, they have literally revitalized and repopulated dying towns, small communities that really lots of people had left. There were, you know, primarily older people living in them, smaller rural areas. They were not doing well from a population standpoint, even from an economic standpoint. But because these new immigrants are coming in, uh, you often see a lot of entrepreneurship in addition to them working in whatever the anchor company is that recruited them. So some of our smaller rural towns that were that were really dwindling in population have now been revitalized. Their school districts have more children and are staying open. Uh, churches, literally, that may have closed down, religious organizations that may have closed down from just not having enough members may have uh, growth in their congregations and it's really exciting to see uh, we're seeing lots of new businesses opened up in different communities that are ethnic uh, you know immigrant owned entrepreneur kinds of businesses and so lots of really exciting things with that and lots of different skill sets coming in different languages that can bring a richness to a community and different beliefs and values again that contribute to that overall mosaic of diversity that we have here in the United States. Could you share some 
positive stories or practices of public health departments or communities more broadly responding to meeting the needs of immigrants? Yeah, um, often, you know, sometimes we think of uh, especially our smaller communities as being places that are maybe resentful of outsiders and don't want all this diversity and they just want to be who they've been you know, kind of thing, even though all of our communities in the U.S. have really been built up of immigrants, you know, throughout the centuries of different waves of migration streams other than, you know, within our indigenous population. But there are uh, actually, we have seen, for instance, within the state of Iowa, there have been some terrific model uh, communities doing model programming for refugees and immigrants, um, one of my favorites, frankly, is is Postville. They went through. They, you know, obviously got a lot of bad internet international attention because of the huge raid in 2008 with the workers there at the meatpacking plant. But they had, you know, probably 30 or more different nationalities for a very long time within their community. They would do events like the Taste of Postville and all those cultures would come out, including the local Iowan, uh, primarily white uh, population from different, you know, European uh, immigration streams and people would literally celebrate diversity and have all types of different events going on. School districts are having, you know, simultaneous uh, language interpretation, even sign language learning going on in those communities. Um, from a public health standpoint, uh, I think Blackhawk uh, County now has long had an interest in its refugee and immigrant populations, and in fact, its current director, uh, her family uh, comes from an African immigrant background as well, and so I think God. Uh, uh, Dr. Nafisa, as we call her, I think she's done a terrific job in trying to identify a lot of different challenges with refugee and immigrant health. She's brought in large uh, members of the community to look at these issues. Um, and, and to that end, actually, Blackhawk County with uh, Waterloo and different meatpacking businesses there has long uh, used immigrant and refugee labor. For instance, in the 1990s, we had a large influx of about 5,000 Bosnians to the Waterloo Cedar Falls area and Blackhawk County area. And then we've had many other refugee populations since, the so Liberians and, and different African populations of people from Burma, many different ethnic groups within Burma now live in Waterloo. And so I was always very impressed with Blackhawk County because we, we've done refugee influxes, I think, well, and we've done it often. And so if there was a new group of people coming in, they were being recruited by companies and we knew they were coming in or they showed up and were going to be there for a long time, we would get everybody together again in basically a refugee response collaborative network. And so the public health department would often lead it or at least be one of the key players there, but you'd have the school districts involved, you would have law enforcement involved, you would have uh, different nonprofits there, you'd have our large uh, people's community health clinic that I love, they would be involved. All kinds of different key players would come in and they all have different roles and well-defined things that they need to do and that they're in charge of. You know, visiting nurses association and all of that and they would uh, collaborate and people would figure out what was needed and 
you know, what was going to happen and what agency would be doing what and how data and information would be shared. So I think setting up, you know, sort of these rapid refugee response collaborative networks, I think there's a lot to be said for that, and that can be very, very, uh, very helpful. And then again, I think agencies that do a lot of footwork that really get out of the office and are intimately, you know, connected with these, you know, large communities and families, and they identify the key players, they identify the local leaders or community representatives. And of course, those people should be actively involved in any type of collaborative programming. Uh, some of the best work I've seen done, for instance, with our African uh, immigrants was done by the African refugees themselves a number of years ago when we had the large Ebola outbreak in Western Africa and we were concerned about that disease spreading obviously across the world and to communities within America that had large African immigrant populations from West Africa. Well, ironically, Iowa is one of those states. And uh, we've had Liberians and other West Africans working in the state for you know well over a decade. And they themselves, those immigrant populations themselves and their networks and their nonprofit organizations that represent them like AFI in Des Moines approached us as public health uh, consultants and saying, we need your help. We are concerned about our own family members coming over in and out of the U.S. and into our communities and potentially, you know, inadvertently spreading, you know, the risk for Ebola. How can we work with public health agencies to change this? And so they were terrific. And that was all driven by the immigrants themselves, um, you know, as being really central. We've got Embark, E-M-B-A-R-C. They are a fantastic nonprofit organization. They're located in Waterloo and Marshalltown and Des Moines in Iowa, and they're active in large parts of the state. Their sole purpose as a nonprofit organization is to assist uh, and provide services, health and education and resettlement assistance to immigrants from Myanmar, from Burma. And that's what they do. And so if you're a public health agency and you have people from Burma in your service area, you shouldn't be moving unless you're already involved with Embark. And they're going to help drive a lot of your programming because they are from those populations. They know those communities. They are from those communities. They have language assistance. They understand the mentality and the culture. And they need to be active partners with public health in providing services to their communities. And then if I could also mention uh, out in Western Iowa, Northwestern Iowa, we have a wonderful community called Storm Lake. It's been addressing this issue of rapid ethnic diversification and microdiversity probably for several decades now, really longer than any of our other smaller communities and even our larger towns. And they have had many refugees and immigrants working in their ag processing industries out there in, in Northwest Iowa. Storm Lake has done fantastic work with its public health agency, who's always playing a lead role in a lot of the collaborative efforts. And for instance, they have partnered with the local police uh, agency there and other nonprofits, and they work directly with 
the companies that are bringing these workers in because they are key to programming. They know who these populations are. They know who they're hiring and what's going on with them. And so, for instance, uh, for many years, when I was working in the Storm Lake area, the local meatpacking plant regularly, on a very regular basis, often weekly or you know, bi-weekly, whatever, would bring in a coalition of speakers, for instance, from the police department, from the public health department, from the schools, and they would all give their spiels and their talks to any of the new hire refugee workers and tell them, you know, welcome to the community. We're great to have you. This is what goes on here in Storm Lake. And this is how things work in Storm Lake and in the U.S. and in Iowa, because these immigrants don't necessarily know. And they were often new to the U.S. and new to the Midwest. And so they did orientations for them, really basic, really good information, basic information that newcomers need about their community. So there are many, many different towns where if you're a public health agency, you now have refugees working within your area, it's worth calling your colleagues in those communities. I would also look outside the state of Iowa. For instance, if you live in Iowa, you're a public health worker, you've got new immigrants in your community, but you don't know who they are, or kind of you know who they are, but what, you know, what's the deal with them? Again, find out where they came from before they got to your local service area and then pick up the phone or email the public health department in that region, maybe in another state, so in your neighboring state, or maybe they came from large cities. We are seeing that. They are sometimes recruited from large cities to come into smaller rural areas in the U.S. to do work. And they like the rural areas for the same reasons Americans do, because it's cheap living, it's a lower cost of living, it's usually safe, cleaner than, than sometimes working in overcrowded, you know, being in overcrowded urban areas. So talk to your colleagues, and I would take it even one step farther, uh, work with your colleagues internationally as well, because these are refugee and immigrant populations. They have homelands, they have native countries, they have agencies that have worked with them in their native countries. You know, the, um, again, Marshallese, well, you know, I would, you know, look into data sets, look into what's been done in the Marshall Islands by the, you know, Ministry of Health in the Marshall Islands. They know all about the disease patterns. They know all about the health beliefs of these populations. If you're working with, uh, you know, some of our uh, refugees that have undergone horrible, horrible things and genocide and ethnic conflict, you should be contacting UNHCR, you know, the United Nations agency that works with refugees because they worked with those populations during the war, during the conflict, during the uh, phase of their lives when they were in refugee camps for years, and they understand those populations. So it's important to understand the migration stream, the beginning, the end, the continuum, where they've been from, where they're going to next, and reach out and learn from those agencies what kinds of model public health programming has gone on and how can you take those models and rework them for your local community that you're now in charge of in your service area, trying to serve these populations as they resettle in our communities. So to wrap up, you've given us a lot of information and best practices throughout our episode today, from connecting with and learning about our immigrant populations to cross-sector collaboration. 
Could you identify for listeners what you think are one or two of the most important action steps for individual public health practitioners, students, community members to do to advance health equity in immigrant populations? So I think for individuals at the individual level, we've been talking a lot about what public health agencies you know, should do or hospitals or those kinds of things. But I think from an individual standpoint, we need to realize just how diverse our communities now are. And we were used to that in the United States. Like if you came, you know, if you're from a large city, you know that, you get that. You know, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, one of the most, most diverse cities on earth. And you just grow up with it. And for you, it's very, very natural. But if you've if you're someone who has, you know, lived primarily in the Midwest and potentially in smaller rural communities, we did not always have exposure to lots of different new populations. So I think one of the best things that students can do and even individual workers is go out and enjoy that rich, that incredible richness of diversity that we have. Get involved in your local community. Volunteer help out, for instance, unrelated to public health and stuff, help out with the local, you know, immigrant organization because they may need help on Saturday mornings tutoring, you know, some of the moms or kids. Help out as a driver. Uh, go to some festivals. A lot of these different groups now have, have been here and they recreate their cultures to the best of their ability. So they often have ethnic festivals and holidays and celebrations and really fun things that are very much open to the public. They very much want to connect with us as much as Americans want to connect with them and figure out what's going on and how do we all kind of operate, you know, within within this new, you know, new United Nations, almost, you know, new level of diversity that we're seeing in large parts of the country. So I think that's really important. If, uh, if an individual has the ability financially or with time and stuff, I think nothing is more transformative than actually going back to the homeland of different populations that you may be working with. Uh, if you have the opportunity, for instance, if you're working with Southeast Asians, go to Southeast Asia, take a trip, go to Vietnam, go to uh, Cambodia, go to Myanmar, go to you know, different parts of that world and actually see these populations where they live. Uh, obviously, if it's safe, you know, don't go, you know, don't go into a war zone unless you're actually working with an agency where that's, that's kind of work that you do. And I, I've certainly done that. But, you know, there's so many of these different places now that you can go to and actually see them on site. So I think that becomes very important too. And then if you're involved, you know, want to be involved in health equity issues, again, and really try to understand them, I, I would get involved in lots of different organizations on the local level, national, international level, depending on what you would like to do, where you can become an advocate for the needs of special populations, vulnerable populations. And this includes our refugee and immigrant groups, and it includes our local Americans. I mean, you can't really talk about addressing refugee and immigrant health disparities in the Midwest, in Iowa, in the U.S., unless you talk about addressing health disparities and inequities for rural Americans 
period. Uh, ones that have, you know, that are native born Americans and where we have large numbers of our counties in the state of Iowa, for instance, large parts of these counties are classified as being medically underserved or health provider shortage areas. And that's for Americans, that's for Iowans that live here let alone for new immigrants and new migrants that may be coming in. So a lot of the health equity issues go well beyond just those that affect immigrants and refugees and really impact lots of different vulnerable at-risk populations. So, you know, collaboration will be key, advocacy will be key, and then getting the messaging out about what we need to do to improve the health status and reduce health equities for all communities and all populations within our country. Thank you, Dr. Devlin, for sharing demographic trends and information about how immigration looks in our region. We're going to shift gears a bit and talk with Vivian Aldridge, a health navigator in Dallas County, Iowa. Dallas County is located near Des Moines, Iowa, and many of the towns are bedroom or commuter communities for people who work in Des Moines. Vivian has worked in Dallas County for more than two decades and has seen these communities grow from very small towns to rapidly changing communities. Vivian, thank you so much for joining Share Public Health today. Sure, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So before we really dive into this conversation, could you share a bit with us about your work as a health navigator? Um, Specifically, Um, I think people might not really understand what a health navigator is. So what is your position and what do you do and who do you work with? Sure, Um, well, as you mentioned, my name is Vivian, Vivian D. Aldrich. Um, I have worked at the Dallas County area a little over 25 years and going on 21 years working for the Dallas County Health Department. I started working at the health department as a bilingual home visitor program for prenatal parents with children up to the age of five. And as time has passed, my job since then has evolved as a result result to the community needs assessment and the health improvement plan known as the China HIP, which I can explain a little more later. Um, My job is reaching out to the population, population a little over 90,000 residents in our Dallas County area. I've been working as a health navigator since 2012, so the question was, what does a health navigator do? Um, We assist residents to solve problems and access resources in the community so that they can live a healthier life. So that's pretty much it. That's what we're doing here in our county. That sounds great. It sounds like uh, a really interesting role to have and a position that many people might not uh, think of when they first think of public health and the services public health offers. Um, So you mentioned you've been a public health navigator since 2012, but you've worked for the health department for 21 years. So how has your role changed and specifically your health navigator role? And has it changed with the community? Have the uh, things that you're dealing with or the issues that you're experiencing with the clients you worked with changed? Because of our growing communities, which is a great thing, I would have to say um, we started our focus um, only in one community. 
And now we're serving like a whole county, the whole county. And during the past year, I've had the opportunity to complete the community health worker course in central Iowa. And we have grown as a program. We are now a team of three health navigators covering the county. Um, Ann Cochran is a licensed social worker and Rhonda Shuffield is a RN nurse. And together we have been serving the Dallas County area. So, um, has, so the changes that I've seen is that, that definitely we're a growing county. Um, Dallas County has grown not just in the population, but diversity as well. And uh, among the Dallas County residents, 10% speak a language other than the English in their home. And so the estimated population is 90,180 residents strong. So Dallas County is the fastest growing county in the state and among the fastest growing counties in the nation. So um, a little census is that uh, in census information is that in 2010 census shows that the Dallas County has seen like a 36.4% increase in population with the growth. And that's been largely focused on the Western Des Moines suburbs found in the Southeast quadrant of the county. So we're, we're growing. Wow, that is a very large change in the population. Yeah. And just to add on that, you know, when you ask about like what kind of changes that we're dealing with, um, I, I see because of our, the communities are growing, um, which is like I said, a great thing. I have to say that housing is, and not just any housing, I mean affordable, decent housing for all, um, a place where people can call home and feel safe and take pride in their community. Um, people are willing to travel to work if they can just to have um, a clean and a safe um, and affordable housing. Uh, financial stability, you know, it provides access to health-related resources, healthy foods, healthy care, safe environment to live if the housing is available. So those are the challenges I think that our county is dealing with as our county is rapidly growing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. On last week's episode of Share Public Health, we talked with Andy Wessel from Omaha about some of the housing work he's doing, looking at housing as a public health issue. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's nice to tie that back in here as well. You mentioned a minute or two ago that 10% of residents in Dallas County, it's estimated 10% of residents in Dallas County speak a language other than English in their home. That's a pretty big number. So I would, I'm guessing that you work with a lot of immigrants in your role. Do you see unique health needs or challenges with the immigrant communities that our listeners might be interested in, especially those listeners who are also working in counties that have seen some demographic changes recently? Yeah. Um, I think that um, I think that regardless who you are, stress is a factor that plays into everyone's health at one point or the other. I see the challenges in Dallas County residents through a small and very short time lens as a health navigator and having the opportunity to work with the immigrant community. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that managing the care system requires more steps. And what I mean by that is how do you manage the health system if you're not yet learned the language? What comes first? 
immigrant families immigrant families come to have a better life and we also know that life happens so some situations can be catastrophic some can be uh, circumstantial and um, I'll give you a few examples um, for example like if you lose your job it might trigger anxiety or depression or what if you become disabled and there you have no social support um, maybe you carry a baby full term and it's stillborn delivery delivery or now an elderly parent might just have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and now how do you try to figure out or understand or manage your elderly parents well-being and the health care plan so when you ask me what are some of the unique health needs challenges um, I think of the things that we can take for granted for example setting up an appointment knowing what questions to ask it could be for yourself or for your loved ones care plan or even knowing or understanding what payment plan system can be for you what could that look like for you you know um, you might have been uh, on your parents health insurance you know and then now in your adult life you're you're needing to access health insurance not knowing where to go for assistance or how to apply or even knowing if you qualify can be the challenge i recently did a, a presentation with young parents and sharing how to manage their own health care plan and one of the things i heard was how stressful that can be uh, we you know when you're sick our stress levels seem to rise and everything can get very confusing fast so those are the things that I see as a unique health need challenge in, um, in the immigrant community those were some uh, really interesting examples you shared thank you for that I think it's especially uh, interesting to underscore that you didn't share any uh, needs or challenges that are really different from the general population, but the compounding factor there is not knowing how to navigate a new health system or maybe having language barriers that make it harder to learn how to navigate that health system. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about the work you've done and what you've shared with us today, do you have a couple of tips or practices that our listeners can implement into their practice as, as public health practitioners to uh, advance equity for immigrant communities they work with and also just the general community they work with? Sure. And I, 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 I like to think about them as, um, um, I try to use this on a daily basis. Um, just don't assume that because the services are there, that everyone can access or that they meet the criteria for the services. Uh, every program um, has its own unique process and there's no, there's no program that is the same. Um, there's no one size fits all. So don't assume. Um, I, I really think that empowering consumers is the key, letting them know it's okay to ask questions to be well informed with the right information. Um, I also think that uh, that we keep in check that the social determinants of health 
have found that health behaviors, as I mentioned earlier, social and economic factors are the primary contribution to health outcomes. Um, I would like to share, um, to please kind of, if you have the time, take time to review our Dallas County Community Health Needs Assessment that was conducted in 2019. And, um, if you have any questions, feel free to contact the Dallas County Health Department. Um, Abigail Shehawk, our Community Health Administrator of our Dallas County Health Department can uh, answer your questions. <laughs> so, yeah. Great, thank you so much, Vivian, for joining us and for sharing more about your experience. And thank you for all of the work you do uh, to ensure the health of residents in Dallas County. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.